Good morning. It's Thursday, the 25th of January, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj based in, well, still cool. I mean, temperature, India's financial capital, Mumbai. Our top stories and themes for the day foreign institutional investors are now selling India and China. Z goes to court saying it wants Sony to honor a $10 billion merger it broke off. HDFC's bank stock is punished. The banking story behind the story. Bollywood has a record 2023 collecting over 12,000 crore rupees, stargazing into 2024. And Netflix takes another step into television territory even as crackdown on password sharing pays off. This is a core report with Govindraj Ethiraj. Foreign institutional investors are selling India and China. Until yesterday, we were watching foreign investors sell China. Turns out they're selling India too. The only difference is that India has very strong domestic flows at this point, including from mutual funds balancing those outflows. However, India did see its biggest outflow of foreign investor funds in 19 months last week, Bloomberg is reporting. Global funds sold about $2.4 billion of Indian shares on a net basis last week, and this number is the highest since June 2022. They sold another $374 million on Tuesday, according to provisional data, as trading resumed after Monday's surprise trading holiday announcement. Remember, we spoke of India's stock market overtaking Hong Kong's, which was valued at $4.3 trillion. Well, since then, India has slipped and Hong Kong has rebounded. So we're back to where we were roughly a week ago. So in 2023, foreign investors brought in about $21 billion into India, that is. Actually, this number is not very high if you were to compare it to previous years. An analyst like Mahesh Nandurkar, managing director of stockbroking firm Jeffrey, said to me just the day before that they did expect this number, that's the $20 billion number, to go much higher in 2024. Of course, the first few days of the month and year have not been very propitious or encouraging in that direction, but there is a long way to go, of course. Also, the one thing that is spooking markets is the Securities and Exchange Board of India asking for more disclosures on who the beneficial owners of stocks are, which is the beneficial owners sitting outside India, but holding stocks in India. Various folks interested or otherwise have asked for deferment on this, but that has not happened. Presumably because transparency is a good thing for the markets in the longer haul, even if some folks would prefer to sell their stocks rather than see their names revealed. Which also unfortunately adds to that suspicion that some of these investors were linked to companies here or promoters here and so on, but that's a story for another day. And of course, there is the story of banks like HDFC Bank, which are in the throes of slowing loan growth and are being hammered in the bosses and have been hammered for the last week or so. And we will spend some time on this matter a little later in the show. Oil continues to stay low. Oil prices fell again as traders were swayed by the prospect of more supplies against the increasing military activity in the Middle East. The United States and the United Kingdom launched more airstrikes against the Houthis on Monday to prevent them from attacking commercial vehicles in the Red Sea en route to the Suez Canal or the other way around. Despite the increased geopolitical tensions, Brent crude is still holding below $80 a barrel, while West Texas Intermediate is now at near $74 a barrel. It does appear that oil prices will be holding around this range for some time as they've been in the past, which also makes a good case for prices in India at the pump to be reduced a little, if not much further. 
Anyway, as we've been discussing here, crude prices have not been rising because of the likelihood of increasing supply from non-OPEC countries or non-organization of petroleum exporting countries. This was our energy segment supported by the India Energy Week to take place in February on 6th of the month. For more details, log on to www.indiaenergyweek.com. HDFC stock gets punished. What's the story behind the story? The HDFC bank stock continues to be punished even as rival ICICI bank. Yes, no one really thinks of them like that now, but they are. Seems to be, that's ICICI, on a stronger wicket, at least if life was a T20 match. Of course, the real matches are longer, are more like marathons and all the rest of it. But at this point of time, HDFC Bank stocks have hit a 52-week low, even as ICICI Bank appears to have overtaken HDFC Bank on market capitalization for now. HDFC Bank, as you know, merged with HDFC and now runs both the traditional banking business as well as the mortgage business. ICICI, of course, from day one or almost day one, has both the mortgage and the banking business as we understand it. Now, HDFC Bank is a bellwether in more ways than one. What that means is almost all institutional investors hold it as much for its performance as for its pedigree, which does matter in the slightly longer or even medium term. Even now, there appears to be a clear split between institutional investors who are either holding HDFC Bank stock or scaling down their price targets. Brokerages like CLSA, which are quite influential, are still holding buys at over 2,000 rupees per share in contrast to its current price of about 1,450. And there are, of course, others who are scaling back. So let us take a step or several steps back and ask what is happening more fundamentally in India's banking sector, which is seemingly spooking some investors and affecting the perception of banking stocks like HDFC. And what is the outlook at a much more fundamental level? I reached out to Ashwin Parikh of Ashwin Parikh Consultants, a veteran banking consultant and analyst who's worked with several big four firms in the past as well. And I began by asking him what was indeed happening. The worry is certainly sort of, you know, well-placed, I would say. And uh, there are several factors which are causing that worry. First and foremost is, I mean, if you look at any bank and then any the working of any particular bank, and particularly in India, I think deposits play a very substantial role. Because a bank's mobilized deposits, and then we had gone to the extent of even classifying deposits into casa deposits, and then so I mean you had the demand deposits and term deposits, and the more of casa you had, the better was your NIM basically. So that was one. And the second, in any case, you know the interest that you pay on fixed deposits, you know the term deposits is always more than the savings deposits also. So I mean three layers of deposits. So banks were really focusing on that. So the worry is that, A, the deposit mobilization has come down, and there are several factors associated with that. You know, I mean, let's begin with the first important factor, household savings. You know, I mean, particularly during COVID and after COVID, have really sort of changed their structure. One is between consumption and savings. People seem to be spending their available cash on consumption. In fact, to the extent that they're committing their future cash, you know, by way of EMIs and I mean various loans from the banking system. That's a major worry. Second is even within that smaller pie of household savings, you know, people are mobilizing, our, let's say market is mobilizing much more. I mean, people are now participating in SIPs and people are participating in mutual funds. So we saw in the last five years a growth of mutual fund AUM from 25 lakh crores to almost about 50 lakh crores. You know, and that has been a huge 
change. So that's the second cause of worry for the banks. And the third and the most worrisome part is that the quality of that credit, that the whatever little credit that they can really give, is also changing its structure. It's changing its form from a large corporate kind of banking. This corporates have now started depending more on the markets. I mean, if you look at the recent IPOs, I mean, you will realize that uh, the recent IPOs are more from mid-sized corporates, basically. So, I mean, at one point in time, we thought that only the markets are available to large corps. But that's not necessarily true any longer. So the credit composition is changing. You know, the banks have to really look for good credit, good quality corporate loans. And therefore, they're turning to retail. That's the other area of structural change in the banking balance sheets, basically. You know? Right. So now within this, some banks seem to be worse off than the others. You know, obviously in a relative way. Why is that? You see, so I'll tell you, each one has a story of its own. See, I'll tell you, I mean, let's say if I look at, let's say, public sector banks, for instance, some of their deposits, for example, were more term deposits than CASA deposits. I mean, in terms of CASA deposits, I suppose the two private sector banks out of the six major private sector banks, you know, uh, were really garnering the most amount of CASA deposits, you know. One had a larger focus on current account, the other had a larger focus on savings account. So, I mean, there are two major banks and people know, I mean, who the banks are. So they had a very large share of that CASA deposit, basically. You know? And now even there also, one of the banks, by virtue of merger with an NBFC, for example, has got a large amount of... So the NBFC deposits were at a much higher rate, basically, compared to, let's say, a bank savings kind of account or, or term deposits. So to that extent, there is a structural change and that organization is making that structural change. So there, once again, therefore... I would say the deposit mobilization itself is undergoing a major sort of stress at this point in time. And good quality, even institutional sort of deposits, if you'll examine, have really reduced in the last few years. But they are also turning more towards other instruments rather than deposit, bank deposit as an instrument. So that is the, the cause of worry, basically. So if you were to look ahead, Ashwin, in the next year or so, or even a little longer, because everything that you've said seems to be structural changes, doesn't look like cyclical or so on. You know, obviously, banks will always be there and will continue to get some level of deposits. But I think the ability to make money, at least from this area, doesn't seem to be very promising. Yeah, so there are a few cyclical changes, which sort of, you know, can be anticipated. One major change that could happen, basically, is that the markets may not remain as hot as they are. You know, I mean, the minute, let's say, the retail investors take a pause, and if FBI funds sort of, you know, stop coming in, and which is something we witnessed in the last three or four days, then the market will start correcting, basically. So that correction is two-way implication. One is the access to, say, a lot of mid-size and small-size, let's say, corporate entities, may not be as easy, you know, as it is today, perhaps. So that's one cyclical change that will certainly happen, which means that dependence on banking system will grow. Now, as far as the banks are concerned, if I look at the current sort of, you know, uh, fund management by liability is more like either they are getting large amount of debts, they're raising those debts. They are raising even foreign, let's say, external borrowings kind of, you know, debts. Now, and, and, and quasi-equity also in terms of tier 2 kind of capital. So now, if you look at that change, basically, 
the cyclical change is not going to encourage that too much, basically. Some stage, once again, the banks will have to look inwards. I mean, ideally, they could have looked at it during this quarter and last quarter, when the interest rates were already high, when they were lending at a high rate. Yeah. Now, the next cycle, which will come up, let's say, maybe two quarters down the road, where we may see a possible rate sort of cut from the monetary policy kind of oriented. Then we will find a larger challenge on the banking system because if they reduce deposit rates, for example, you know, then the mobilization also sort of could suffer a lot of it, go further. So I suppose whatever structural or whatever, let's say, cyclical challenges that they are likely to get, you know, or opportunities that they are likely to get. You know, some of the opportunities are, for example, as I was saying, the institutional funds can come back to the banking system, you know, because they may not really find the investments in markets as interesting, sort of, you know, as, so that is one. The third phenomena is somewhere which is we are, which are missing out, but the cycle will play its part and it will work perhaps in favor of the banking system, and which is also the, the core money, basically. So the interbank money, for example, because there's tight liquidity situation at the moment, and the regulators withdrawn to control inflation more than anything else. So, I mean, in the next two quarters, perhaps we may see a certain amount of that accommodative stance may, may get withdrawn. If the stance changes, then once again, that's going to be good for the banking system. The cycle will change completely. Now, in the backdrop of all this, the banking regulator is also particularly worried about a certain kind of loans, for example. And already the small loans and particularly starts with unsecured loans. But eventually, he will certainly also start sort of imposing a little more sort of conditional permission or allowance. You know, it's through suasion at the moment. But I suppose it will be by way of regulatory guidelines or debasing. So, which will also sort of, you know, cause a certain amount of change in the structure, in the banking kind of, not structural really, but cyclical to the extent that it's going to take care of that cycle. The RBI or the regulator is more worried about over next four quarters. If they're seeing symptoms of stress, you know, particularly the NPS. Now, in a in a in a scenario where the economic sort of you know performance of the overall economy is good, NPS do not really rise their ugly head, I mean, head. But during the adverse period, and then the minute the economic growth, the GDP starts a small amount of decline, repayment starts becoming a challenge, recovery starts becoming a challenge. So those are some of the cyclical factors which the banking system will have to really address or look into. Right. Uh, Ashwin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Elsewhere, staying with banking, Reuters is reporting that India's banking system liquidity deficit has hit a record high amidst outflows towards tax payments and limited government spending. Traders are now anticipating that the central bank will infuse more cash to address the shortfall, the news agency said, with the deficit widening to 334,000 crores or $40 billion as on yesterday, triple of what it was in the beginning of the month and year, according to Reserve Bank of India data. So far, the central bank has conducted shorter-term repo auctions to infuse cash into the banking system, but in refrained from infusing longer-term money, Reuters said. Sony puts on a brave front. Sony Group's India head has sent a letter to its employees assuring them that they would thrive despite its aborted merger with Z Entertainment Enterprises without adding any further details though because presumably it was known that this letter would leak into public domain. 
Sony finally pulled the plug on a proposed merger with Z, which had been in the offing for almost two years. The company said it would focus on content that can boost subscriber growth and revenue in India while actively exploring inorganic possibilities to strengthen its market presence, according to that letter seen by several news agencies. Meanwhile, Z said it was going to court to enforce the merger with Sony, who had earlier slapped it with a $90 million termination charge. Z said it had approached the National Company Law Tribunal, which handles corporate disputes. News of that merger's termination sent Z's stock tumbling nearly 34% on Tuesday, but it recovered somewhat on Wednesday. One reason the proposed $10 billion merger broke down was Z's likely insistence on retaining promoter Puneet Goenka as CEO of the merged entity, who in turn was the subject or has been the subject of a fund diversion investigation by regulatory body Securities and Exchange Board of India. And some two-wheeler results and some gifts. Bajaj Auto has reported a 37% surprise year-on-year increase in net profits for the third quarter at about 2,000 crores thanks to strong sales of two-wheelers, price hikes and higher realizations amidst consistent demand according to Money Control. What helped Bajaj, as it has many others, was a product mix in favor of premium vehicles leading into a higher average selling price for those vehicles and of course the entire fleet. Bajaj Auto's revenue also increased 30% to about 12,000 crores for the October to December 2023 period. And very broadly, Bajaj's domestic business has done much better than exports, which were reported as challenging. Sticking to family-owned businesses elsewhere, Wipro's founder, Azim Premji, has given away some 10 million shares worth about 500 crores as gifts to his two sons, Rishad Premji and Tariq Premji, according to data from the stock exchanges reported by Mint newspaper. On 20th January, Premji, that's the senior Premji, gave shares each to her elder son Rishad, who is the chairman of Wipro, and to Tariq, who works in Azim Premji Foundation. Wipro's shares ended at about 484 rupees on Friday last week, implying that they were valued at about 496 or almost 500 crore rupees. Bollywood has a strong 2023. Bollywood was gifted a good 2023 as well, with last year being a good year for India's movie box office, crossing the 12,000 crore collection mark for the first time and closing the year at about 12,226 crores. The previous pre-pandemic peak was close to about 11,000 crore rupees. Hindi cinema also saw its best of a year with a gross box office of about 5,383 crore, crossing the 5,000 crore mark for the first time. Hindi cinema's box office, that's 44%, reached the pre-pandemic level of 44%, up from 33% in 2022. All these figures are from Research House or Max Media. While more than 1,000 films released in the year 2023, just the top 10 films contributed to about 40% of the year's total box office. The highest crossing film for 2023 was Javan, with gross box office collections of 734 crore rupees. Some 943 million footfalls were registered, a growth of about 6% over 2022, but they all remain under the pre-pandemic level of almost billion footfalls. But they remain below the pre-pandemic level of a billion footfalls in 2019. Average ticket prices grew about 9% from the previous year, from 119 rupees to 130 rupees. I reached out to Sanket Kulkarni, head business development theatrical at Ormax Media, And I began by asking him what stood out last year and what the coming year holds, at least from what we can project at this point. To be really frank, I think some of the most interesting trends that one has kind of noticed is, number one, 
industry's ability to kind of provide event films which are theatrically worthy from an audience perspective that has kind of increased if the reason why to watch this film in a theater is clearly mentioned and people see value in it i think those kind of movies are doing really really well for instance for a pathan the reason would be a return of shahrukh in an action avatar for an animal it will be about a promising cinematic experience that you haven't seen before through a compelling character or in case of gadar it would be as simple as the nostalgia but that seems to be the trend that if you can figure out what makes this film theatrical worthy then a major part of the battle is won similarly another interesting trend that has come up is some of the makers have managed to find the sweet spot of combining the star power of hindi actors along with the storytelling of south directors so atli and sharuk to provided you a jawan or a sandeep reddy wanga and ranbir kapoor provided you an animal so these two are kind of great examples of collaborations like these are really working well and the third most important part is importance of franchise films so from hollywood we kind of know that franchises are like staple there right every year almost 70 80% of hollywood collections would kind of come from franchise films if not more right and if you talk about the indian numbers in 2019 around 17 to 19% of box office collections came from franchise films the same number for 2023 is almost 45% so there is definitely this new importance for franchise films that is not just about being interested in the film and watching it in the theater but you must have after marvel there have been these multiple cinematic universes that you're hearing about right so now you have a wire of spyverse right so you have a tiger 3 in it you have a pathan also a part of it and couple of other films that will follow that similarly war is also a part of it similarly you have a lcu which is a lokesh cinematic universe so tamil director lokesh kanakraj his films which include kaithi vikram and recent hit leo that together has formed another universe right after the success of animal sandeep reddy wanga has mentioned that animal park would be the next part of the film so this whole concept of franchise films and creating engagement around it that has kind of also flourished really well so these are some of the key trends that apart from what the report is saying that one has observed so yeah that's something that is interesting to look forward to in 2024 tell us about like one film like jawan which was the biggest crosser in 2023 what else contributed to this apart from the fact that it was cinematically appealing or positioned as cinematically appealing as well star power and so on is there anything else from the point of view of collaboration right like a major chunk of growth definitely comes from hindi because you have crossed the 5000 crore mark your percentage contribution has increased from 33 to 44% however at the same time it was complemented really well by tamil and telugu films because you have almost three films which have crossed the 300 crore mark in the top 10 which belong to either a tamil or telugu industry so you also have been supported really well by these industries so together that has kind of led to a really big number one would say so footfalls are still below pre pandemic peaks as far as movie halls go right yes that another interesting point if i have to just give you an understanding on that right so 2023 the total footfalls for the industry are 94 crores the same number in 2019 was 103 crores so in a way although this has been your highest box office collecting year but you have still not managed to reach the levels of footfalls which were in 2019 now a clear understanding of this is we as a industry have kind of grown 
predominantly by increasing the average ticket price rather than making more people come and watch films into theater but to be really frank this is not just a phenomenon in the last one or two year to give you an example hum aapke hai kaun all time hit film almost two decades back the total footfalls that a film of that stature saw was around 7 crores today a film like jawan which has done almost 650 700 crore plus as its collection the total footfalls for this jawan is around 3 crore Oh, that's interesting. So you're saying it's seventy million at that time and thirty million now. Yes, the streaming universe would sort of balance that, right? I mean, people would watch it later or have the opportunity to watch it later on streaming, which was not the case earlier. Definitely is an angle of why this is happening. Obviously, entertainment choices at that particular time were different. At the same time, you have the post-pandemic inertia coming into play, which has been reduced to a great extent now, followed by the whole. advent of ott which kind of makes it a little less compelling and hence there is a shift in the taste of the audience so over a period of time what has happened is because of the post pandemic inertia combined with advent of ott what has really happened is audiences have become way more selective in terms of what is it that i want to watch in the theater eventually your complete box office collection is getting more skewed towards the top 10 or 15 films to give you an idea the top 15 films together are combining almost 48% of total box office collection as of of 1000 films roughly yes and why this is exactly happening is because there is a huge demand for these limited 10 15 films the makers kind of have a higher ticket price for these films and people also ready for it so even though the footfalls are comparatively lesser you have a lot of people paying that ticket price and because of which the box office collections are kind of getting skewed towards this 2024 do you see the industry crossing a billion footfalls at this stage that will be really speculative but as a enthusiast if you just want to get an understanding of how good 2024 can be you don't have a sharukh salman or a ranbir film for sure and ranbir and sharukh have been important for getting this big number this year so that's number one however the franchise point that i mentioned right If you look at the lineup of franchises that you have, so you definitely have Singham again, which will have a stellar star cast. So Deepika is joining, and a lot of you have Bhool Bhulaiya three coming in. You have Welcome to the Jungle, which is a sequel for the Welcome franchise. You have that. You have Pravas's Kalki two eight nine eight, also part of it, and the biggest one of them is going to be Pushpa two. So I really think you have a strong four five films definitely uh, there in twenty twenty four. Difficult to say whether it will beat this year's number. but i definitely think 2024 should be a competitive number so in the last two years theater did not figure out what is it that they should make so that they can tackle the post pandemic inertia and at the same time tackle the advent of ott now you kind of know what to make to kind of get people in the theater so that puzzle at least for the next 2 3 years has been solved also another interesting trend one is seeing is you had recently started seeing this trend that on ott you would have this token releases right you would have a token release of a film in theater and you will have it for a day or two maybe in limited theaters and then it will come on ott so there was this clear distinction that only scale and theater worthy films will come to theater but interestingly what 12th fail has done when a film like 12th fail kind of crosses a 55 crore number there is hope for even that mid level cinema to kind of do good so if you have more of these also coming into picture as a trend in the next year then you definitely have a good competitive 2024 for sure
Right. And let's look out for that. Hope to speak to you again very soon to see where it stands. Thanks so much for joining me, Sankir. Thank you so much. And more entertainment, but this is closer to home. Netflix is ramping up its investments in live programming with a new deal for WWE wrestling rights as it continues to add new customers at a rapid clip. The streaming giant added about 13 million subscribers in the fourth quarter, apparently its strongest final quarter ever for net additions, after attracting 7.7 million new customers in the same period a year earlier, the Wall Street Journal reported, adding that subscriber growth is a sure sign that its global crackdown on password sharing was a success. So now Netflix has ended the year with about 260 million subscribers, up about 13% from a year earlier. Netflix said it plans to spend about $17 billion on content this year on the back of its revenue rising about 12% from a year earlier to about 8.8 or about $9 billion in the final quarter of 2023. Net profits were also up close to about $940 million. And more spirited news. Remember, folks said that there was no way the dry state of Gujarat would ever allow sales or consumption of alcohol. Well, it did last month after it said it would allow the consumption of spirits in Gift City, the International Finance Centre. Now, it's not my case that everyone who goes to a financial centre does so to get sloshed. But the fact that it was not there, which is the spirits, was considered a hurdle for any place positioning itself as an international anything, leave alone a finance centre. Now, news from Reuters is that Saudi Arabia is preparing to open its first alcohol store in the capital Riyadh to serve exclusively non-Muslim diplomats. Customers will have to register via a mobile app, get a clearance code from the foreign ministry and respect monthly quotas with their purchases according to a document seen by Reuters. Of course, this process sounds exactly like something we here in India would be used to. Anyway, Saudi's move is also apparently part of wider plans known as Vision 2030 to build a post-oil economy and is part of efforts to open the ultra-conservative Muslim country for tourism and business as drinking alcohol right now is forbidding in Islam. On that spirited note, that's it from me for today. See you tomorrow. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>